We are delighted that this episode of Starts at the Top is sponsored by Avato Connect. Avato Connect is a socially conscious customer experience and business optimization partner for organizations who are ready to reshape and reinvent how they work and connect with those who matter most. They develop and deliver innovative technology-led solutions to enable their clients to form strong connections, increase loyalty, create efficiencies, and ultimately grow and confidently embrace the future. To find out more about how Avato Connect could help an organisation like yours and to receive a free no-obligation chat, visit their website, avatoconnect.co.uk. If you have succeeded in in reaching the top, I think it's really important that you sort of give women the benefit of your wisdom as to how you did that and how they can do it too. Welcome to a brand new episode of Starts at the Top, our podcast about leading differently. I'm Paul Thomas. And I'm Zoe Ammer. Our podcast exists to help leaders and their teams understand what they need to do differently today to prepare for the world of tomorrow. We started Starts at the Top as a podcast about digital disruption, but we soon realised that leaders were telling us about something more important and urgent, about how traditional ways of leading had changed forever. So we make it our mission to speak to leaders who are carving out new ways of leading, and we cover topics from emerging tech to inclusion, from remote work to mental health and climate change. Basically all the subjects that today's leaders need to be across in 2024. Our podcast isn't about shiny corporate case studies. It's about lessons learned and progress made the hard way, and crucially, how that can inspire others. And talking of inspiration, today's episode and episode two of our four-episode Women in Leadership season kickoff features our conversation with Channel 4 News presenter and journalist Cathy Newman. I think it's fair to say, Zoe, that we were both excited and nervous about this one. I mean, it's not every day that you get to interview a newsreader. They're normally the ones that are interviewing us. <laughs> yes, quite right. Absolutely. I was a little bit nervous, but also excited and thrilled to have the opportunity to talk, Cathy, about her new book, The Ladder. Uh, it's a brilliant book. It's a really fantastic companion piece to Cathy's podcast of the same name, which is available now through all the usual channels if you're a Times or Sunday Times subscriber. So the ladder brings together discussions between women about work, love, growth, challenge, their big decisions and the stories that make up their lives. It covers topics such as change, anger, illness, imposter syndrome, self-knowledge, purpose. And I love this, how not to panic in a crisis and how to stop worrying you're boring when there isn't one. <laughs> and the book contains insight from some amazing women, not least politicians Nicola Sturgeon and Angela Rayner, right through to scientists like Dame Jocelyn Bell Burnell, activists like Rosamund Kissy Deborah, and broadcasters like Joan Bakewell. And also tons of insights from Cathy herself, who was a wonderful and thoughtful guest. And Paul, it was a relief to know that even a veteran broadcaster and national treasure like Cathy uh, can also have the odd issue with tech, just as we do sometimes. Yeah. yeah, so listen out for the moment where Cathy's phone falls on the floor and marvel at how seamless we all pick it back up again, smooth as you like. So we mentioned in our last episode that we're thrilled to be kicking off this season with a run of four episodes focused on women in leadership. So listen out for our next two episodes in the coming weeks. Before we introduce Cathy, one of the topics that comes up in almost every conversation we have on the podcast is mental health in the workplace. And Paul, you shared a new study from the Resolution Foundation, which is out today, the day we're recording, called We've Only Just Begun, which aims to take action to improve young people's mental health, education and employment. Can you tell us a bit more about it? Yeah, so as you said, this is out today and it's um, hot off the press over so stores just reading through it and, and sifting through a little bit. But as you say, mental health and well-being are certainly hot topics, perhaps even more so since the pandemic. And this study really caught my eye because it focuses on young people, and in particular how a young person's start to adulthood can have on their life, their long-term life chances. The headline on the BBC, though, was a bit misleading, I think. It focused on how more people in their early 20s are out of work due to ill health than those in their early 40s. 
And then if you dig a bit deeper, there's stats in there like one in three people, that's 34% of people aged between 18 and 24 reporting symptoms that indicated they were experiencing a common mental health disorder like depression, anxiety, or bipolar disorder. Half a million 18 to 24-year-olds were prescribed with antidepressants in 2021-22. And that young people with mental health problems are more likely to be out of work than their peers. And there are links drawn in the research to education too, with universities called out as being hotbeds for poor mental health and in schools. I mean, this is the frightening one, an estimated one in eight, that's 12% of 11 to 16 year olds with mental health problems are missing more than 15 days of school in, and that was in the autumn term of 2023. So just last year, compared to just one in 50, that's 2% of their healthier classmates. Goodness me, that's a really shocking set of stats there and a real wake-up call for those of us who are parents or who have young people in our lives and young people that we're trying to support in the workplace as as well. Um, There's some really shocking numbers there and it it really brings it home to you that the transition to adulthood is always a tumultuous time, as the report says, leaving education and entering the world of work is, is very tough and I remember that transition well. But of course, we didn't have to contend with a pandemic and all the growing drumbeat of other issues such as climate change and all the other challenges that we've talked a lot about on the podcast. And we've heard from countless leaders who are paying even more attention to the challenge of mental health since the pandemic. But it's clear that leaders will need to continue to do more. So to be aware of the challenge this brings to their organisations. Yeah. It's another one of those items for the manager's toolkit, isn't it? So that's 100% right. I mean, the report also calls for more mental health aware managers, particularly in sectors that employ large numbers of young people, such as retail and hospitality, um, where a third of young employees apparently report mental health problems. I mean, it's clear we need to do more and continue to invest in better management practice and mental health training for employers. And it also makes me think that if you've got young people on your team, and a lot of us do, uh, and already thinking about this with some of the young people on my team, I need to check in with them more regularly and I need to have time to talk to them specifically about their well-being and how they're doing and what I can do to support them. Because what this research reveals to me is that it feels like it's an epidemic of some really challenging mental health issues for our young people we've got to do a better job at helping them yeah yeah and i work quite closely with the young team um and certainly we do our best most of the time to check in with each other especially when you know things are tough during the course of any given week it's good to check in but sometimes those things fall by the wayside and they really can't so we have a a regular monday morning catch-up i have that with most of my clients and i'll make sure that during those monday morning catch-ups we do check in with each other if we're not um if we're not doing so already that's a good place to begin isn't it and it's about making that kind of check-in a really regular thing that that you do yeah and also um, noticed today just conversations going on in WhatsApp where you know you just recognize the little triggers and warning signs that somebody's not doing okay and just making mm. sure that you check in and, and ask. Yeah, always good to do that. Thank you for sharing that report, Paul. I think it's really important and should make all of us as leaders and managers really thoughtful about how we can better support young people. So you can find the report on the Resolution Foundation's website, which is resolutionfoundation.org. It's well worth a read. Um, And as Zoe said, you know, we're both parents to young people, so constantly vigilant to, certainly in this house, to my boys' mood and behaviour. And studies like this one are really helpful in shining a light on those issues. So please do check it out. Thank you, Paul. And without further ado, now for our conversation with Cathy Newman. Kathy Newman is one of Channel 4 News's main studio presenters. She joined Channel 4 News as political correspondent in January 2006 after seven years writing for the Financial Times. Kathy is an award-winning investigative journalist who scoops her allegations of a sexual harassment in Westminster, an investigation into a British paedophile who abused vulnerable boys in Kenya, and allegations of violent abuse by the British barrister John Smith. She was the only broadcast journalist to travel with Angelina Jolie and the then Foreign Secretary William Hague to the Congo as part of their campaign against sexual violence. 
Kathy also hosts her own show on Times Radio. And Kathy's first book, Bloody Brilliant Women, was published in 2018. We are so excited to have Kathy here on Starts at the Top today. And we're really looking forward to talking to her about her new book, The Ladder Life Lessons from Women Who Scaled the Heights and Dodged the Snakes, which I have just read and I'm feeling very inspired by. Kathy, welcome to Starts at the Top. We are so excited to have you here. Thank you. Thank, for thank you for having me. Can you tell our listeners what inspired you to write The Ladder? I, in my day job, I present the news for Channel 4 News um, and I do a weekly show for Times Radio. And invariably, the, the sort of new news gruel is pretty gruelling. So, you know, it's we've just come through the pandemic, obviously. There's war, there's economic crisis. It, the perma crisis, as, as the phrase goes, is quite depressing. And so what I find is every week on Times Radio, I do this half hour chat with incredible women who've reached the pinnacle of their professions. And it's called The Ladder. And it's half an hour, which I find so uplifting. So it's kind of been an antidote to the general news grimness is hearing these women who may have been through some incredible struggles in their lives. In fact, most of, most people have, funnily enough, that you talk to. Um, and what's inspiring is how they've got through that trauma, grief, personal tragedy, whatever it is, and how they've got through that and developed these, this incredible career and, you know, way of life. And they have so much wisdom to share and so much advice to offer. So I find it really inspirational. And of all the discussions you've had, and we were talking about some of the uh, conversations that have really stuck in your mind before we began recording today, of all those conversations you've had with women on the ladder, which one has stayed with you the most and why? I mean, it's really hard to pick just one because there's so many. I mean, I'll just pick three and then I'll zoom in on one in particular, if I may. Um, Hearing Rosamond Adu Kissy Deborah talking about the death of her daughter, Ella, um, the first person in the world to have air pollution as a cause of death put on her death certificate. And just hearing her talk about how she, from that enormous grief, she fashioned this global campaign to try and combat air pollution. That's one. Two, um, Tani Gray-Thompson, Paralympian, talks about the resilience that she learned as a child when her parents were incredibly no-nonsense. They refused to adapt the house for her disability. So she ended up sort of dragging herself up the stairs on her bum to try and, you know, sort of move around the house. And just hearing her talk in an incredibly matter-of-fact way about dealing with her disability and powering through it. Um, But I think the one that probably if I have to choose one it's like choosing between your children this is unfair you've put me on the spot um but Anne Oliverius a campaigning feminist lawyer talks about how she stood up to her dad who was abusing her mum and at one time she talks about repeated incidents of domestic violence and she talks about one time when she was a teenager and her dad was about to hit her mum again And she got between them and said, hit me instead, hit me. And if you do, I'm going to take report you to the police and you'll never be able to do that again. And I just think the power of hearing someone talk about as a teenager, as a young teenager, how they stood up to an abusive person and she put a stop to it. You know, that for me was an incredibly powerful conversation that, you know, and I I won't forget that. Wow, yes, I can see how that would have have really stayed with with anyone. I mean, it's such a amazing example of when someone realizes their own agency. To be honest, virtually every week I come out of the recording and just say to my colleagues, "Wow, what an incredible trailblazing woman." And you know that people have such amazing stories and that's why to go back to your first question, that's why I wanted to put it all in a book because, you know, with broadcasting, there's that sense that you do your half hour recording and it kind of goes into the ether and that's it. Um, with a book, there's something more permanent. I wanted to kind of distill their wisdom into the pages of a book and, and also sort of reflect on it, draw some common themes out and and some lessons, which I hope it's a bit of a kind of manual for other people to, to read and learn from. Yeah, I think that really comes across very effectively. And I also loved 
your own take on your own experience and how that melded with the different stories you were sharing as well. Um, and on that note, one of the things that really struck me in the book, and I, you know, I remember sort of sitting up when I was reading it and thinking, gosh, this really feels like it's speaking to me, was where you talked about imposter syndrome um, and how that comes up a lot in, uh, it comes up a lot in our conversations with leaders, but also with the women that you talk to as well. Mm. So this is something which we hear so much from leaders leaders, particularly at the moment when I think everyone is very kind of weary and burned out over the last few years and since the pandemic, exactly as you were saying, what advice would you give to anyone feeling as if they are not enough right now, despite yeah. their amazing achievements? It, it is fascinating how many of the women, I don't think I've come across a single woman yet um, who hasn't experienced imposter syndrome. And funnily enough, my colleague Aisha Hazarika was interviewing Tony Blair a while back and and asked him about imposter syndrome and he hadn't even heard of the phrase. So that kind of speaks volumes. You know, a man hasn't heard of it. Um, but what, so although there is a woman um, MP who I'm about to interview who says, oh no, don't ask me about imposter syndrome because I literally don't have it. So I'm quite looking forward to asking her why she doesn't have it and that's great. But um, but yeah, on what I find the best advice, I'm going to go back actually to one of the interviewees in the book, and that's Jocelyn Bell Burnell, who was my first ever ladder interviewee. She's an astrophysicist. A lot of people haven't heard of her, and I ask why, because she is one of the most eminent astrophysicists in Britain. She discovered pulsars, and without her discovery, we wouldn't know about black holes. So she's quite amazingly influential and yet she's not a household name and she should be in my view she experienced imposter syndrome she was um she had to pour over all this data um when she was at cambridge university and she was worried that she wasn't good enough to be there and so she um worked extra hard to just look at every single little scrap of data that she had and that is how she discovered um, pulsars because she went the extra mile basically and spotted something that no one else had spotted um, and you know pulsars are, are, are stars that have reached the end of their lives so it was an incredibly seismic discovery um, in astrophysics and so my advice would be channel your imposter syndrome if you can't dispatch it channel it to make yourself better and you can rest assured the fact that Tony Blair hasn't heard of the phrase imposter syndrome or hadn't until that interview, you can rest assured, rest assured that most men don't experience imposter syndrome. That's a generalization. I'm sure there are some that do. So I would say my advice would be bear that in mind that you shouldn't be feeling imposter syndrome because you do deserve to be where you are by and large. So try and have the confidence to, to know that. But if that's not possible, then channel it to make yourself brilliant at whatever you do, which is what so many of the women in the book do. My experience with that was I remember posting about this on LinkedIn years and years and years ago and saying, I can't remember what it was now, but there's something I was going through and I thought of massive imposter syndrome when I do this, walking into a room or standing in front of a room and presenting or whatever it was. And I had somebody come back to me on LinkedIn and say, it doesn't exist. I don't know what you're talking about. Just it's a poor excuse for lacking confidence, lacking conviction in what you've got to say. Mm. And, you know, it's not a public, it's not a, it's not a platform for a public spat, but it was one of those moments where I just thought, well, hold on a minute. There must be others out there who've experienced this. And then the flow of comments underneath that one person saying it doesn't exist, just sharing their experience of it was just incredible. So, you know, I completely agree with you. It, it's, it does exist. There are many yeah. there that, that feel it too. Um, but whilst it is there, is a, there is a challenge out there. I think from lots of people who just just think it's an, it's an excuse, and I think it's absolutely wrong to call it out. Of that. Yeah, I mean, I think it can be quite destructive. Um, but I also the one of the other pieces of advice from the book, Catherine Green, who was one of the Oxford University team that helped on the COVID vaccine, so a pretty amazing woman herself. She talks about the necessity of, mm. of feeling. Um, imposter syndrome because if you don't she says you've got to feel out of your depth because if you're not feeling out of your depth you're not going to be crossing the river and getting to the other side so I thought that was a pretty good metaphor you've got to you've got to feel oh my gosh I've got to swim um otherwise you're not going to get to the other side of the river and so yeah. to a certain extent then Kathy I'm mean, just drawing on what you were saying um in the book and what we were talking about earlier do you think there's a sort of healthy element to imposter syndrome I, I think it can be really negative, and obviously you've got to. I think it's really important to to 
tell yourself that you are worthy of your job. Otherwise, you wouldn't have it by and large. I mean, obviously, there are exceptions to all of these rules. But um, so I think it can be quite negative and you have to sort of deal with that. But I think it can be positive because it it, it drives it drives you on. I mean, I'm a, a perfectionist and that does that can be negative because sometimes I let, you know, the best be the enemy of the good. But also that makes me driven. You know, it makes me determined to do better that, you know, live TV never goes 100% the way you want it to. And so that sort of desire to be better drives you on. It's the same with imposter syndrome. So I think, I think it can be, I think you have to be alert for it to be negative, but it can be a positive thing too. Mm, I know what you mean, because I often feel um, like with, with my work, that actually having little bit of doubt sometimes a little bit of questioning around oh how can I make this better and how can I improve it and how can I Mm. test this and other people can be a really good thing I think it's when it starts to tip over into shame and that existential feeling of I shouldn't be in this room I do not deserve to be here that yeah for me is always a kind of warning sign of I need to go and get proper sleep tonight or Mm. I need to you know sit down and really think about why I'm feeling like this and I felt that you're your book explored the sort of nuance around imposter syndrome um, really effectively and how it sort of plays out for women as well. Yeah, and I think that I think that one of the things that you realise as you know, I've now spent nearly thirty years in journalism, and I, one of the things I, I've sort of reflected on while talking to the women in the book is that you acquire, I think, you acquire confidence with age as a woman, and so you know, I'm about to turn fifty. And I actually find that quite liberating because I care less about what people think about me. You know, I don't really feel, I don't care if I'm being judged online. I don't care about that so much anymore. Um, The MP, Caroline Noakes, said exactly the same thing, that the older she gets, the more confidence, confident she feels, but also the less she cares about people's judgment. And that's quite liberating. Um, But so I do think that whereas men entering their 50s by and large, it's like, oh, you know, wow, celebrate that, the wisdom that they've accrued. And, you know, the, the wrinkles on their face, well, that makes them look like a kind of sexy silver fox. With women, especially women in the public eye, it's like you get to 50 and it's like, well, how long, how much longer are you going to be able to be on screen? And, you know, are you going to have to have plastic surgery? And by contrast, having talked to all the women in 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 the book, I feel that you can reach your 50s as a woman and be so much more confident and so much wiser and have and be sort of buoyed up by all that accrued experience so I think 50s I mean I'll tell you when I get to the other side I'm 50 in July but I feel it should be a really empowering time to be a woman in your 50s I hope it is (laughs) I totally agree with that because I'm uh, just a few years behind you and I am seeing all these amazing examples of women who are 50, north of 50, who are just totally living their best lives, who have this incredibly yeah. strong sense of age. You know, someone like Trini Woodall, for example, um, and you yeah. obviously as well, where actually it's a it's a reinvention and also a chance to really, you know, draw out that inner strength as as, as well and to care less what people well, think. Well, I also think, that, you know, Davina McCall and Carolyn Harris are to menopause campaigners, Mariella Frostrop as well, my Times Radio colleague, they've done us all a great service because they've showed that you can sort of power into your 50s and you can take the kind of menopause by the horns and sort of shake it and make it work for you. And I, I think that is something that previous generations of women didn't have that, those trailblazers sort of paving the way for them to, to yeah, to soar in your 50s. I think I think that is, I feel very grateful to them for having started that conversation. You know, our, our mums never talked about menopause. I never talked about menopause with my mum until very recently. It just wasn't something that came up for discussion. And Our first so- episode this season is with Lorraine Candy and we've um, both read and enjoyed her book. And yeah. I think she, again, is a, a real example. of cites many examples in that book of people that, um, women that have sort of stepped into uh, another life it's like a, a another dimension um of their lives and she's another ladder interviewee by the way yes i know she's yeah, referenced yeah, in the book yeah, a couple I of times that. That. And, you know really really good to connect those two things but it, what it means for us is we've got these two really great stories at the beginning of this season of the podcast about women that are embracing midlife yeah. in a completely different way 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's something that's really always been available for men in their 50s. You know, they, they are at the pinnacle of their careers. They're all powerful. And, you know, they look quite good as well. And it's like now I feel those options are becoming available for women too. As, as a man who is exactly the same age as you, I think, and just about to go into his 50s, I'll report back. Uh, yeah, let year. me know how it is for you, yeah. But, we'll you know, how that's notes. going. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, we wanted to talk a little bit about social media. And you just mentioned, you know, you, you, you care less about your online profile. And I think mm. in the book, um, you know, very, very sort of um, recent uh, news of um, Twitter being taken over by Elon Musk and turning to X and becoming a bit of a, um, in my words and yours, cesspool. It's mm. just not a great place to be. Um, and we were interested about the sort of the, the, the role of that's playing around um, women feeling less safe as their profiles change and, and, and grow yeah. on social media. I was struck really by recent conversations, I think, uh, that I'm, I'm a football fan and, and there's been recent discourse on uh, Twitter in particular from likes of Joey Barton questioning the position of women in the game, particularly from a TV presenter's role point of view. And some of those comments are just awful and, and, and dreadful. Yeah. Um, and I guess that's another space where this surfaces, this sort of misogyny, deep misogyny surfaces and that women may feel unsafe. And I just wondered if you had any thoughts yeah. on how social media was changing. I became very embroiled in all this um, a few years back. I mean, I guess sort of soon after the advent of Twitter, I had some really unpleasant trolling. Um, and, you know, I was doxxed, my home address was put out online and I yeah, got death threats and all of that. It was horrible. And the first time that happened, I felt completely dehumanized by it. And just, it felt like I was a sort of scrap of meat that was being torn apart by wild dogs in the street. It just felt like an absolutely visceral thing. And so I found that really, really shocking. And I think it, it really sort of knocked my confidence at that point. And, you know, it's happened a few times since. I think what's changed in the last few years for me is I have less time. So I have less time to go on social media. And that's good, I think. Um, I also think in some ways, it's I, in some ways, I guess social media has become more important in the last few years. But in other ways, I, I mean, Twitter is far less influential than it was. I think people are spending less. This is anecdotal. I feel people in my circle of spending less time on it. Um, and people spend time on Instagram, but it's sort of more for leisure, I think, than professionally. And I feel like we're in a bit of a hiatus because maybe people like me are spending less time on social media, but what's replacing that? Because, you know, young people are not watching public service news, for example. So they're getting their news from TikTok, and yet people like me aren't really on TikTok to any great extent. I tried it and I didn't really feel I was connecting. Um, so it feels that we're at a bit of a crossroads. I've drawn back from social media and I'm not really sure what comes next. Um, so in, in terms of how I handle that, I guess I have retreated a little bit. Um, I'm still there. I, you know, I, I remember when I first got trolled, um, someone said to me, well, why don't you just come off social media? And I felt slightly resentful of that because that was, it was like someone saying, oh, women shouldn't walk down a dark street at night because it's not safe. So I kind of stuck it out. And I still have a Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok presence, but I feel I'm less invested in it. And I don't know how that's going to pan out. I don't know whether that's going to mean that maybe I, you know, is, is, am I going to have to become more invested in it? Because that's where the eyeballs are. Or are we going to find a different outlet? Is there going to be a, an alternative to Twitter? I mean, threads didn't really seem to catch on. Right. Um, so yeah, it's not a very definitive answer to your question. I, I feel like I'm in a bit of a sort of holding pattern on social media at the moment and I can't be as immersed in it as I was because it's just, I feel like my, it's not worth it. I think one, one study that Zoe and I have sort of shared and discussed a little bit recently was, um, a report that sort of said that these conversations are changing because they're moving into a different channel. They're moving into more curated spaces. People spend mm. more time in their WhatsApp groups, which are completely closed off to the outside yeah. world. And we've heard from all sorts of leaders, oh. many female leaders that we've spoken to who have said they seek support and solace in 
those inter- those quite um, curated networks of of women and leaders where they can share an article. Oh, I've read this and I thought about it. We used to do that on on Twitter. That's where I always used to share things yeah. that I found interesting. And now I'm actually doing that into curated groups where I know there will be an interest in that topic and that's where the discussion can happen. I think that that is a very good point and it does that that may well be the case. I suppose what I feel is it is that going to end up being more time consuming if you've got, you know, this like the other WhatsApp. I mean WhatsApp takes an incredible amount of time as it is. Um, which is mainly sort of colleagues communicating with each other. You know, I'm communicating contacts. Then there's the, all the family WhatsApp groups and the neighbourhood WhatsApp groups. So um, I'm not sure whether that's the answer. I mean, I think a lot of broadcasters are moving onto YouTube. You know, you saw Piers Morgan doing his stuff on, on YouTube. And I wonder whether, and Channel 4 News puts all, you know, not all of its stuff out on YouTube, but selected um, strands. And I wonder whether that is that the way forward. I don't know. I, d- I feel like we're at a bit of a crossroads and I'm interested to see how it pans out. And that's really interesting what you were saying about your network not being on Twitter or, or X. I always forget what to call it these days as much. So is is that um, the case then? That a lot of journalists, you know, are relying less on Twitter as a source of information. I, I think they're all, everybody's still there. And everybody's still like, oh, you know, when a big story breaks, we're all sort of checking what's who's saying what on Twitter. But I feel like people are spending less time on it. It's not, I don't know. But then some people do still tweet quite obsessively. And I always think, how do you have time to do that and to sort of engage in the way that you are? So it's probably a bit of an overgeneralization. I feel that some people, it, quite a large number of people have slightly withdrawn from Twitter. And I certainly, when I talk about, oh, I don't really spend as much time on Twitter, I find a lot of people say, no, nor do I. And it's, it's you know, a bit of a, a cesspool, as you say. Um, but maybe maybe people are spending longer than they care to admit on Twitter. That's always a possibility. I know that I'm spending less time on it, um, but maybe that's not the case for every colleague. I wonder if some of it is to do with those um, those sort of shared experiences. There's less and less, and you talked about the changing role of TV, for example. Um, we're not sitting down to watch TV in a in a in a linear way that we normally would do. I think there are the odd experience. I think one yeah. experience recently that we had was watching Traitors. Yeah, because that was three nights in a row, specific nights of the week, and everyone was tuning in and sharing their mm. experiences on social media. But there aren't many of those anymore. No, I really miss I that. Remember, yeah, and, and I remember being really invested in the 2012 Olympics because of that mm. sort of general sense of we're all in it together, and we don't have that as often anymore. I think I think it is a real shame, and I, I do really miss that. And I also think even with podcasts, for example, there's such a proliferation of podcasts you know people are listening to different things you know there are obviously there's the you know Alistair Campbell and Rory Stewart and people like that and news agents probably I don't know it it, there is the audience is very dispersed isn't it and I think that's a shame um that there is less of a shared experience and it feeds into this sense that we're a very divided society and we're sort of all shouting at each other in silos and not really coming together and having a genuine sort of shared experience. I agree. Yeah, so multiple filter chambers, isn't it? It feels like that has proliferated even further than since the last election. Um, So speaking of the election, if you are a female leader um, who still very much has to be on social media, so for example, Paul and I were talking to uh, the CEO of uh, a well-known campaigning charity the other day, and she has to be on social media. She has to be out there on Twitter talking about policy as, as part of her role. It's going to be quite a tough year, isn't it? It's going to be a tough, volatile year online for all the reasons that we've just discussed. So if you are a very you know, well-known woman, you have to be out there. You have to be on these channels as part of your job. And obviously, online safety is is vital, as you were just saying. Mm. What advice would you give to leaders in that position? Yeah, it's very difficult because, yeah, politics has become so toxic. And I think the campaign is going to be a very nasty campaign. So it's going to be very tough. And I think a lot of women are deciding that politics is therefore not for them, which is a terrible shame because, you know, that that's to our detriment as a democracy. If women or even men, you know, you've looked at Mike Freer saying he doesn't want to carry on anymore because of the anti-Semitism he's faced. Um 
And I think that is a genuine issue for democracy, that all of the, the abuse that sort of originates online, but, you know, we've seen MPs killed in recent years, you know, that is a terrible, that will have a terrible chilling effect on democracy. And, you know, we've unleashed this, we've let this genie out of the bottle and we can't put it back in, you know. That so what would be my advice? Well, I hope that the social media companies are regulated properly and that the regulation that is in the pipeline in the UK does prove to be successful because I think that, you know, strong regulation is needed in this space as it is, you know, we have, we are very heavily regulated in the broadcasting sector and um, it seems baffling to me that, that the online sphere has not been regulated in a similar way for so long and it's got out of hand. Um, but advice to women who have to be on social media, I mean, I would say don't trawl through the notifications, you know, don't. And I know that part of the purpose of social media is to interact with people, but I think you have to do that quite sparingly because if you immerse yourself in the abuse, you know, you're having to spend time that you probably don't have using the block button and reporting, block and report, block and report, that's time consuming. If you have a team who can do that so that you don't have, that burden is not falling on your shoulders, then obviously so much the better. If you don't have a team that can do that, I would say you have to limit your time on social media. And it's not the only way to communicate with people. Um, you know, we're doing a podcast here. Um, other people do a YouTube channel. There are ways of engaging with people that doesn't involve you trawling through a load of abuse that is quite frankly toxic. But I think regulation has to be part of the answer because, you know, there are, there are so many instances where the tech giants have got away with things that broadcasters would never be able to in a million years. And that seems to be a very detrimental to our society. Definitely. And to public discourse as, as, as well, it yeah. really lessens the quality, doesn't it? And yeah. as you were talking, I wonder whether there's also an opportunity too, because one of the things I was saying to uh, the um, female CEO I was talking to the other day, I was saying, well, there are going to be people who are really hungry for that long form, high quality content, like a podcast or a really well written blog, where that will be much more appealing to them than, you know, the, the sugar rush of, of all of this volume of um, very negative, very kind of high octane content that I think we'll see a lot of uh, as we start to get further into the election periods. Yeah, and I think that's a really positive um, development that, you know, we've talked about the proliferation of podcasts. Um, well, that is, okay, it might be nice if, if more people sort of tuned into the same ones that we were able to discuss our favourite podcasts. But um, it is a real positive that there is a yearning for long form uh, broadcasting. And, you know, even the ladder is half an hour. I mean, it does, it's a podcast for time subscribers, but, you know, it's half an hour live on Times Radio every Friday night. And that is, I love the fact that I can have a 30 minute conversation as opposed to my usual three minutes on TV. Um, just there is that, as you say, that that yearning for depth rather than, yes, the the however many characters a tweet now is, um, you know, people yelling at each other and then and then going away and hiding. I mean, yeah, to have a proper sort of discussion, who knew that there was such a thirst for that? But there clearly, clearly is. And that, that's heartening. Definitely. We've evolved from 180 characters towards something a bit more substantive. 180 minutes. It is, yeah, exactly. Well, hopefully not. <laughs> there, is, there is a time and a place for that sort of thing. But yeah, I, I get the, it's the, the, it must be the same for you within the, the news as well. There's the, the sort of the, the two or three minutes you can give to a, a story in a half hour news program versus the, the depth you can go into on a, in another medium um, mm. I listen again you know I don't want to keep bringing this back to football but I always manage to be able to but um, two or three minutes after a football match or match of the day just isn't enough whereas you know you could listen to podcasts from I would say what used to be happy amateurs talking about these these um, these games but more and more in-depth analysis in the same way that you might analyze a news story on as you said the news agents yeah it's, it's all there for the taking isn't yeah it? Absolutely. Yeah. And no, I think, I think, I think that is one of the encouraging things in an age where attention spans are supposedly so much shorter. Suddenly people want to know 
all there is to know about a particular crime investigation you know in a crime podcast and you know netflix has overseen this absolute proliferation of of high quality content you know that sometimes i i find it quite funny that my kids watch something on netflix which is like a channel four produced drama or something and they'll watch it because it's on Netflix and they know that Netflix is where they go for for long form content when actually, you know, it was on, they wouldn't be seen dead going on all four, you know, the Channel 4 app. <laughs> so, um, yeah, no, there's, you know, there, there is definite in, in an age where there's so much to worry about. It is, it's good that the, these trends suggest that we haven't lost our appetite for intellectual curiosity and, and mature discussion. And hopefully we'll see uh, that continue during during this year, despite everything that's that's going to be happening. Um, yeah. So towards the end of the book, you talk about how employers need to create inclusive workplaces where women are encouraged to excel and lead. What do you think leaders should be doing to create inclusive workplaces? Mm. Well, I think part of the answer is to, you know, diversify the the boss strand, the C-suite, as they call it in in America. Um, So, you know, I hadn't had a female boss. In fact, no, I did have have one female boss earlier in my career. Um, But, you know, by and large, my bosses were male until my new boss at Channel 4 News. Actually, she's not that new now, but um, the new editor is a woman, Esme Wren. Um, And so, you know, to have more female bosses, more women of colour who reach the top of the, uh, the ladder, as it were, I think that that is really important because you can't um you've got to see the change to be the change haven't you and i think you know when i was first working my way up the ladder it was a very male dominated environment it, there was a lot of sexism harassment inequality and part of that was because i was very often the only woman in the room and you need role models and you need mentors i'm a big believer in mentoring um i do a lot of mentoring when i can when i have time um and I think that's really crucial. And that whole, I know it's a, it's a bit of a, a cliche, but the, the sending the elevator back down, I think to, to, to build a more inclusive workforce, it's really important that women who have reached the top help women who are on the way up. Because, you know, that whole thing of the old school tie and the old boys network, you know, I don't, I'm not saying I want to replicate networks that exclude men, for example, but it is nevertheless the case that, if you have succeeded in in reaching the top, I think it's really important that you sort of give women the benefit of your wisdom as to how you did that and how they can do it too. Oops, sorry, oh. just dropped my phone. Oh no, have I just? Oh, oh no, oh, sorry. I'm here. It just fell off my bag. I was waving my hands rather too enthusiastically, and I propped it on my bag. It's very high tech. This. Right, we're okay. <laughs> Back really in the game. Happy. Sorry, I just find that really reassuring as one of the nation's most famous broadcasters. <laughs> You're also <laughs> someone who knocks your phone off. Oh, yes. It's, and, you know, this is also because it's like I I, do. people think that I'm really, because of being in broadcasting, that I'll be really good with tech, but I'm absolutely hopeless. So, yeah, I'm literally just on my phone with really old-fashioned earphones. So I don't have earpods. I don't have anything like that. So I'm afraid my secret is now out. <laughs> Well, you're you're sounding and looking great, so don't worry at all. And if it reassures you, I work in digital, but I am genuinely scared of my printer. Um, so don't worry, it happens to be better. That's good to hear. <laughs> now I was going to ask you about this quite a lot of um, towards the end of the book. You talk about allyship, um, and that can be that can come from other women or it can come from men. So I guess it's the yeah. male half of this. <laughs> um, <laughs> if you hadn't noticed. Um, I just wondered what advice or, or what you would say about sort of male allyship and what male leaders can be doing within their workplaces yeah. to, no, this to is really, really pay attention. Yeah, it's really crucial because, yeah, I, t- I talk a lot about female networks, which I think are really important. And it's something that when I was first starting out, there weren't really a lot of women to get advice from. And so it's quite hard to have that sort of network. And I found that a lot of the women who were quite senior were not necessarily very encouraging of other women so and that's completely changed now and I think that's really crucial but I also apart from having some very good female mentors and friends and colleagues along the way Alice Rawson at the FT and 
Rosie Bennett, who was also at the FT now, um, and then she went to work at the Times. But um, I've also had really important male allies. Uh, when I was at The Independent working on the news analysis page, which was an incredibly hard, it was my first job, it was really hard, you know, hard graft. But I had the benefit of um, getting to know um, a guy called Matthew Horseman, who was media editor of The Independent, and then went on to be a, a sort of a media advisor. And he just gave me just the most brilliant advice and was such a sort of warm friend and supporter. And I'm still a really good friend of his. And, you know, he just stupid things that he would tell me, like, you know, don't take a lunch break, use your lunch to to network with people. And um, if, you know, contact tells you something um, that's, a, you know, you're going to turn into a story, then make sure you go off and write it down in the loo between courses. Just, you know, very basic stuff about being a good reporter that I just learned so much from him. Um, I'm sure I've had other male allies. I do think white male allies, you know, as I think it's Jude Kelly who said to me on the ladder that you do need male allies because the structure is still in many ways set up for men. You know, we still live in a patriarchal world. So you have got to progress within the confines of that that world and you're not going to do that without men buying into your success too and I don't mean that in a kind of antagonistic way at all but yes I think male support is incredibly crucial and how I think it's quite I mean it's a cliche isn't it checking your privilege but I think it is really important for men to sort of know how they are coming across and are they letting the women in the room have a voice and quite literally sometimes there'll be women who are trying to speak who aren't being heard um because you're just sort of defaulting to your sort of male power dynamic i think it's really important to just almost stand back from yourself and just see how you are being viewed and how you're coming across and are you giving way enough to make sure that the women in the room get a voice that would be my advice and you're clearly a great male ally yourself because you have you have given way seamlessly in this podcast so that it's uh, it feels like a very constructive collaborative affair it's just very funny when we all sort of stumble over each other and uh, we sort of you know no, you go on no you go on and as the man i'm sort of thinking well actually no you go on um, yeah this is, this is more <laughs> well, but i think it's important isn't it it's important for us to, as men to, to recognise this. And as, as I said, you know, we're starting off this season of the podcast with four episodes that are focused on women in leadership. And it was really important for us. We had all these conversations sort of um, lined up. It was really important for us to sort of stand behind that. We, we try to be as diverse and open as we possibly can with, with, with everyone that we bring on. But to really call it out and say, look, you know, we're, there are four, three or four books being published or having been published in the last 12 months alone focused on this topic it's a huge of huge interest to our listeners and i guess that the final bit from me was i guess the the, the conversation that at the end of the book you sort of uh, you we had this conversation when we, we started off the, the, the discussion but there's a lot of reason for optimism as well so mm. there's a lot of uh, a lot of industries where this is really being taken seriously and where it is really heavily invested in are there any areas of the world where you feel that there is still a real challenge where it's just where you're not seeing that much progression yeah i mean i do i do end the book on an optimistic note thanks to mary beard actually who talks about mm. how she's encouraged that things are improving both online and in the real world and i share that optimism because you know i, I do a lot of talks at schools as i've said and i find that young women are really inspiring because they are not going to take any crap. They're not going to stand for any nonsense and they're really determined to sort of, you know, be their own people. And so that really inspires me. But yeah, there are obviously areas of the world where things are incredibly depressing and you feel that things have gone backwards. I mean, not least in all the many war situations um, the plight of women and children in Gaza, for example, um, and the, the prevalence of sexual violence in um, war zones, I find, you know, that's a sort of medieval concept. And it feels horrific to me that we're still talking about that and still talking about how hard it is for women in that situation to get justice. 
the rape conviction rates, for example, are still absolutely atrocious. I know they're improving, or at least when I last looked, they are improving, but from an incredibly low base. And the, the lack of trust in the police after Sarah Everard, um, and subsequently that, again, feels like, why are we still in this situation where if you're a rape survivor, you know, in many instances, you think twice about going to the police? You know, why is it taking years for rape survivors to get justice because of the backlogs in the criminal justice system. That's in this country. Then you look at the states and you look at um, access to abortion and how that's gone backwards. You know, I never thought that Roe v. Wade would be challenged in the way that it has been. So, yeah, I'm fortunately there are there's plenty of reason for despair. But I suppose what the ladder women have taught me is all the causes for optimism because they have... I think we started this conversation by saying they have been through immense trauma and struggle. Tawakal Kalman, you know, she is an inspirational campaigner. She has faced so many hurdles, you know, being put in jail for one thing. And yet she still has the hope and the optimism to carry on campaigning because it's her, in her DNA. It's, it's for some reason she manages to cling on to hope. And I think if, someone like her can, then we can. What a great note to end on, Cathy. Thank you. What an inspiring book. Um, Thank you. An inspiring woman, uh, featuring the stories of so many inspiring women. And uh, thank you so much for uh, sharing your story with us and for telling us more about why there are reasons to be hopeful for everyone, even in a really tough year. Thank you. Definitely. Thank you so much for having me on. It's a pleasure. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Huge thanks to Cathy for taking time out of her schedule to come on the podcast. As I said in the intro, this book came at just the right time for me and I loved chatting with Cathy. What did you think, Paul? Well, a little like last week, I think. The, the book was a great read and another one that I'm sure I will now pass on to my wife. It's grateful that I'm adding to her reading list. Um, and I'd like to think, I'd like to hope that I'm a good male ally to the, the women I work with and live with. <laughs> And this book and this conversation is one I would love more men to pick up and read. It's really, it does have my ringing endorsement, so go and get a copy of the book. As always, we really do appreciate that you've listened all the way to the end of the episode. Thank you. You can support the podcast by leaving us a five-star review wherever you listen to us. It really does help us reach more people. So if you've enjoyed what you've heard, please do share it with a friend. Thank you so much for listening today and we'll see you in a couple of weeks with a brand new episode of Starts at the Top. See you next time and bye for now.